0: You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, welcome to the show. You know I'm always trying to find people who live the perfect life, the idyllic uh, uh, workspace scenario well. So we have uh, a couple of interesting characters for you today. We're joined by Neil Mini De Silva, who is a consulting flood risk expert, and Stephen Liaros, who recently wrote a book called Rethinking the City on the Birth and Death of Economics, Religion and Democracy. So uh, I met these two at the Nina conference, and they recently came up to our property in Drummond, and uh, we had a great old time discussing the ways of the world. So, uh, Nils and Stephen, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Carl. Good day, Carl.
0: So tell me, how did you come up with this decision Uh, as uh, planners, uh, well experienced in the bureaucratic process? You you pulled up stumps and uh, hopped into a mobile uh, van and have been travelling Australia for three and a half years. What was the motivation for that?
1: Well, about five years ago, we set up police plans. And we were sort of doing our traditional consulting work, but also trying to talk about these ideas through Greens groups and other communities. And people in Sydney were excited, but we didn't feel that people were really ready to make a leap and and do something different. And, And we realized that we really need to get to the regional areas and connect with councils and communities who are really looking for something different. So that's what we did three and a half years ago. And initially started sort of connecting with uh, eco-villagers and living there for a little while and and talking about different ideas. But in the end, we came to a decision that we really had to design and build a demonstration project. So we could kind of integrate everything that we've been learning and, and kind of experiencing. Yeah, so
2: the journey was really about learning as much as possible about the things that are happening around these ideas of co-housing transition towns eco villages intentional communities all the new kind of ideas uh, well they're not new. those ideas are not new but uh, what's new is the changes in technology renewable energy the internet and what the internet makes possible so we we felt that it was uh, a good opportunity to learn as much as we can and then take the best of each thing that uh, like from each place and uh, try and build a model that's replicable, something that can be introduced into councils planning systems and and, uh, built by anybody.
0: And so as you're traveling, you're you're learning on the spot, but you're also engaging with councils and and helping them to develop their uh, future cities type agenda. Would that be correct?
1: Yeah, we're certainly trying to influence how they think about the future. We haven't changed policy so far, but our first connection was with Tweed Councils, which are council in northern New South Wales, and we were particularly attracted to them because they already had a policy that talked about regenerative development in the rural areas. And so, you know, this was exciting because we know that this is where the change must happen. Bernard Stolls and and others have been talking about this idea of an e-change where you kind of extract people from the center while people are already extracting themselves because the cities are unaffordable and so living within an hour or two of a big center like melbourne or sydney or other big cities like the gold coast is feasible now because people can work online and just commute once a week or once in two weeks and so we are trying to create these work and life hubs with water and energy and food integrated to both create resilience, but also to create affordable housing opportunities and generally a better environment because we're talking about a food system, but also uh, a system where there could be land set aside for wildlife.
2: Mm. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say of those three and a half years, the first two years at least were um, continuing our learning and integrating uh, Mm -hmm. the things that we, we bring from our professional careers into the ideas people are trying to develop Um, so it was only like last year that we connected with tweed uh, end of 2017 and uh, this year we've made connections with about four or five other councils and um, the reality is we only need to find one council that's keen enough to be the innovator the uh, the one that's going to break through and uh, and Once we can embed those um, policy, make those policy amendments that we we need and which are consistent with most councils' desire for sustainable development and connected community and resilience and all of those things that are already there in the motherhood statements, but we're developing an implementation plan for those things.
0: So is it something that a council or a developer would pull off the shelf and here is the how-to manual on how to create uh, uh, this sort of circular community.
2: Yeah, Yeah. so so we're trying to influence the different strategies and planning schemes and um, infrastructure plans and so on within the council to enable it as a kind of development, just as you know, residential flat buildings as a kind of development and single dwellings as a kind of development and they've got all these controls around them. We want to describe this as a kind of development within council policies and that then gives certainty for investors and developers to -hmm. build in this way.
1: So we're calling it a circular economy innovation hub because it's, it's as much about connecting with your food system and your water and energy system as it is about working in place. So we're trying to Kind of address some of the challenges we're going to have in the future, from climate to the future of work to economic crises. And if we, you know, if you're not going to have these 40 hour work weeks, then can we create places where your basic needs are provided for, but also you can then give some time back to the community in exchange for the provision of those needs, but also engage in some boutique industries that might help reduce waste or
0: whatever. Are you hinting here about the future of AI and automation and what that will do to the labour force? Exactly.
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think uh, it's, it's quite obvious that automation is taking over many jobs and we're, striv- we're driving towards a zero marginal cost society. So it'll cost virtually nothing to generate energy for example and then to produce goods and services and so if there's no labor needed to produce those things if capital and automation and technology is producing all of those things then who's being paid the money to buy the things that are being produced so we need to create a system where people are more resilient and able to at least provide for their basic needs and do that efficiently and then work out what what we need beyond those basic needs within that spare time that we have when we deliver those basics efficiently.
0: Yes, well, that that is the great mystery, isn't it? How do we reclaim our sovereignty where, at the moment, we have uh, these rent seekers etching into every uh, crevice they can within our lives to extract more and more uh, rent, uh, whether it's electricity, whether it's... Uh, Transport costs, uh, housing, of course, is a massive one. So, uh, how do you think uh, uh, that power structure is going to change uh, over the next decade or so?
2: Well, I think the idea of sovereignty really starts, in my mind, with food sovereignty. So, if you're in order to develop your own, well, it starts with energy sovereignty. So, once we have our own energy, and we can build an energy microgrid, then that can power a water microgrid, which can irrigate a food system. And then when we design the built environment so as to minimise energy demand and create those shared spaces and uh, and uh, durable structures that uh, we no longer need to keep buying into the system, we can provide those those basics locally within the community then um, you take back the sovereignty through taking your energy sovereignty and your water sovereignty and your food sovereignty. And that essentially gives you that local sovereignty because we're dependent on the economic system to give us the money to provide those basic things. If we're going into the workforce, such as it will be in the future, with those basics provided, then we're not doing the bullshit jobs just to get the money to provide those basics we choose the jobs that we're passionate about because we're not doing it just to pay the mortgage and put food on the table
1: and and the thing is like all these systems are already there I think what is missing is that we don't we they're still in their silos and what we're trying to do is say let's bring them all to one place and design uh, by looking at by using a systems thinking approach. And that's how you're going to get zero waste because you look at the nexus between these systems and get the output of one to be the input to the other. And we can so easily do this. Um, We just need someone, some local community somewhere to go, come on, you guys, come here, let's do this together. And that's really what we're looking for.
0: Mm. And so as you've searched through the nation, uh, you mentioned uh, the Northern Rivers region, you must have visited some interesting communities. Uh, What have been some of the highlights?
1: Yes, yeah, so we we really enjoyed visiting Bellingen because we felt like the councillors that we met and the council staff and the community were very much on board with what we were talking about. There's a very active affordable housing forum, uh, a community group there who's really driving this. And so it really has to kind of come from that grassroots level much as have the acceptance uh, from from the elected council. So Bello is, is just a fantastic place. It's got a really lovely vibe, um, mm. but you know p- these 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 sort of centres are getting gentrified as well, and and people who've lived there for a long time are getting pushed out once again because disruptions like Airbnb are sort of now being used by big operators for a different reason to that which uh, which sort of when it originated.
2: Mm. Yeah, but in terms of the highlights in those areas, we, we've visited a lot of people in Byron and um, Lismore to a lesser degree, but we've kind of focused just outside of the real kind of that that area, the Byron-Lismore area, uh, although we have contacted Lismore Council. we are focused more on Tweed and Bellingen um, yeah. as... Uh, yeah, just because we really want to appeal to a broad demographic. We don't just want to appeal to, um, you know, just Greens groups, for
0: example. Mm. It's a challenge, isn't it, as we all work in our separate fields to etch society forward to uh, uh, this place where we can control our own destiny and have a bit of headroom within our weekly budget so that uh, we could step back uh, from uh, the 40-hour work week to have a bit more time with our kids. Yeah. It, it's uh, in a way so frustrating that uh, we have these communities uh, that, you know, we, we have this TV show called Neighbours, but uh, we're so <laughs> poor at actually knowing our neighbours. Uh, how have yeah. some of these communities you visited uh, worked around that to really encourage those connections?
1: regional areas there's already far more connection anyway like for example in the northern rivers there's a lot of the zero emissions groups for example who meet regularly we've been invited to you know give presentations there the markets are another wonderful place like we always love to go shopping at the markets and kind of you know have breakfast and you kind of start chatting to people who are seated next next to you we found the same thing in South Australia in, in sort of the Yonkaparinga and Mount Barker areas south of Adelaide where there's already a vibe there's already people sort of forming connections and talking about these issues you know there's yoga classes and meditation classes and so outside of the big cities I think there's already connection there's already people talking about the ideas it's just-
2: mm, I, I think uh, what, what is um, I, you know we, we use the phrase we shape our cities thereafter they shape us And we've shaped our cities now where there's fences and walls and barriers between all of us and and therefore competition between my patch and your patch. And uh, so we need to shape our cities or at least our local communities in ways where there are spaces for people to stumble across each other just in their daily activities and and form uh, communities or friendships organically. Um, I think one of the things that we really struggled with as we visited different communities was uh, the attempts sometimes to really force that you know we must get together, if, you know, have regular meetings. All these all these kind of uh, forced communities is not what appeals to me anyway. And so we we'd like to create environments in which people can organically form mm.
1: um,
2: communities. Mm. Well, friendship is a better word of saying it, just friendship groups.
0: Listeners, you're on 3CR's Renegade Economist. This week we're talking to Nils and Stephen from polisplan.com.au, polisplan.com.au. They're travelling the nation, trying to inspire the sort of uh, uh, ethical green... Uh, sensible community developments that uh, we so sorely need. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, take a step back in time and uh, visit the uh, the new towns movement from back in the 1920s, which was uh, born out of Ebenezer Howard's uh, Garden City type movement. It's yeah. what you're talking about. Sounds very similar to that. Uh, uh, what have you learnt from that point in time? Uh, you know what light can you shed on on uh, you know those thousands of people who tried to get up these communities way back then?
2: Yeah, I think uh, the Garden Cities is a is a fascinating idea because it comes from this this concept of needing to you know we have congested cities and how do we create this alternative magnet this this more ideal environment outside of the big cities that draws people out instead of this constant flow into the cities. And I think one of the, the flaws in the garden cities notion, it's a great notion, but but the idea that the garden aspect of it should be a food system. It shouldn't just be gardens in, in the sense of pretty open spaces that are, you know, nice to look at, good rural landscapes, if you like, but but not productive. And that's why we talk about not just beauty but utility. How do, how do we blend beauty and utility in in the way that we create spaces?
1: And in fact, Oldinga Eco Village in South Australia is one place where we found um, that they stipulated what you could grow within the eco village. It either had to be native or it had to be edible. So there's sort of different ways in which you can make sure that your landscape is productive and Mm. and useful one and and i think you know the e-change is certainly enabling people now to get out of the cities and and one thing that people always tell us is there's no culture outside the city and we find that is so wrong like these regional towns and rural villages have so much culture so much happening um, that's so one of many opportunities. so many opportunities. That's something that we have really enjoyed being part of the festivals and and seeing how much creativity there is in outside of city mm. of the big cities in in Australia.
2: Yeah, and I think that's how the the change has to happen. It has to be um, has to start in the rural areas uh, through this kind of regenerative development integrated with regenerative agriculture to create these places that are magnets for people to come out of the city. That way we can sort of rebalance the landscape, reduce the congestion and the unaffordability of the cities and deal with that problem later. But in the first instance, start by drawing people out. And it requires narratives like that, like the garden city, the the better, more affordable place to live. Connected to your food system, you can still work because e-changes and the internet still allows you to work remotely um and
1: connected to your community, to your community that, that's yeah. something that's yeah that we've really seen and enjoyed in in these places like people kind of just come up to us and recognize that we are from out of town and once they realize they're living in a motorhome often they'll say oh come and park at my place so let's have a meal and chat about what you're doing and and you know yeah we've had so many opportunities come our way just through random conversations it's, it's been very exciting
0: it is incredible as you travel, those uh, synchronicities that appear and, and pull you in certain <laughs> directions. <laughs> now, you've mentioned uh, water, food, energy, and a few times the term affordability has slipped in. Uh, what is your approach to uh, delivering affordable housing within these uh, utopian-type communities?
2: Or utopian. <laughs> I won't touch that term. but <laughs> the affordability-
0: <laughs> They're realistic, okay. Eh?
2: Real utopias. So the affordability is tackled from a number of perspectives. So firstly, there's the cost of living by producing your own food and your own energy and your own water. So the ongoing cost of living is reduced. The second thing is by working with the rural areas, you buy farmland, and that's much more affordable than um, urban land, obviously. So the land cost, which usually is about 50% of the cost of housing in the cities, Um, is significantly reduced and also shared by up to 200 people. So land cost is significantly reduced. Uh, The capital cost of construction is significantly reduced because it's built once for uh, all of those people. They're not each individually taking out a loan and engaging a developer or a builder to build their house. So all of that requires rezoning and, and so all those planning Policies need to be in place to enable that to happen. So you're capturing the land value uplift by uh, rezoning the land um, through that development process.
1: And affordability will also be part of how we design places. At the moment, we've got these big detached houses in Australia, but by having smaller private house spaces and larger shared spaces, we can reduce the ongoing costs by reducing our energy consumption etc. You know that's very much part of what we're trying to do reduce the ongoing costs through design
2: Mm. and there's also transport costs that you're reducing by creating a live and work hub
1: Mm. where
2: people can can work within a walking distance of where they live.
1: But also through having shared vehicles and you know shared lots of other things like Mm. tools and libraries and yeah. Yeah so
2: there's so the aspects of affordability are those shared spaces, food and uh, energy and water uh, accessed by managing the environment, capital cost reductions, land value capture, and you're buying rural land in the first place. Mm-hmm. So but but suitable. also
1: a lot of things like those big ticket items of, of washers and dryers and ovens and all of those can be shared. So we don't mm. all have to have our own
0: thing in our kitchen. Because, but, yeah. but, yeah, I suppose that's certainly true, but, uh, you know, that's a $1,500 shared purchase versus, uh, you know, a $400,000 piece of land in the city. Uh, you know, mm. where where are the big savings? It's, for me, uh, you know my focus is on the land story. So how would you do the the value capture? What sort of process do you use to ensure that the community gets the value of that rezoning and uh, it doesn't end up in the bank's hands through higher mortgages.
2: The idea is that the community where we want to set up a, a kind of a, um, a building cooperative in the sense that Urban Coup and um Baal Group and those kind of models where people are getting together to purchase the land. So So when they set up the entity and we're looking at a community land trust type entity that people buy into collectively, uh, so they buy a share or units in a trust and they purchase the land. So having purchased it, any improvements that are made belong to that community.
0: And you had some interesting concepts about uh, people's differing abilities to be able to pay, uh, to, to purchase into uh, such a land trust. How would that be orchestrated?
2: So you definitely need investors, but there's also the way, and this is still evolving, but we're trying to hook into the narratives building around the idea of build to rent, where we would act as a consultant for example to this development group of this this funding group and and build the village scale circular economy innovation hub so the investors would would invest in the in the entity that builds it but people would come in and out by renting so so you rent for whatever period you need security so that allows for Nomads like us who who want who might want to be there for three months, but if you want to be there for ten years, you know on average people hold land for I think seven years. So you know we construct a system where people can rent and have security. So we need to separate security of tenure from ownership. You don't need to own it to be secure. You need to have a secure um, rental system as they do in many other parts of the world.
0: Yeah, that, that flexibility is a key. But on, on the, um, the downside to it, uh, with so many people, you know, Australia being uh, the wealthiest nation on the planet, and so much of that tied up in housing wealth, to avoid any share of that rising value uh, it, it does put members of your community at a disadvantage uh, how, how do you think uh, that would stack up over time with the savings on the uh, water energy and food front have you done any numbers on on that sort of uh, a comparison so that you know these councils could see that this money would be kept within their local community rather than it disappearing up uh, up the food chain.
2: We know that that's kind of the next step in terms of the actual numbers, but but in principle, uh, we feel that the the numbers would fairly easily stack up because of the affordability savings we mentioned earlier. Um, but but Projecting forward, it's really hard to imagine the broader market continuing to rise over the next 20 years in the way that it has over the past 20 years. Mm. So so what are you comparing it against? Are you comparing it against kind of that best case scenario where prices will continue to rise? I, I can't imagine they're already out of reach for so many people. How can they keep rising further.
0: That, that's what people were saying in the mid-80s though and uh, the banking industry yeah. increased mortgages from 20 to 25 years. We now have the yeah. potential for a 40-year mortgage so unfortunately the powers that be will try and manipulate things their way it's incredible yeah. what they get up to but uh, yeah it's up to us to prove those savings. Yeah. Let's
2: plan out those those last 30 odd years though as you said the uh, you know, loans were 10 to 15 years in the 80s. And as you said, they increased to 20, then to 25. Most people just assume they'll have it until they get their superannuation now. The other thing that's happened, and you, you can match um, the rise in house prices with the um, the availability of credit as credit became more available. And the notion was not that you were going to pay off your house, but that you could pay the mortgage interest rate um, on a weekly or a monthly basis. So people are no longer expecting to pay off their home. They're expecting it to keep rising. And um, when they get their super, they'll downsize. And um, hopefully, everything will work out perfectly. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it does, and mostly now it doesn't. So I think we've reached a point where, where there's no more silver bullets or no more ways in which we can keep pushing the market upwards. I think that's the issue now, that how do we, you know, we've extended the life of loans to people's entire life. (laughs) We've, you know, reduced interest rates to the lowest and, they, you know, they virtually can't go up anymore because everyone will default. And, you know, we've really (laughs) freed up credit to such a degree that everyone's just borrowed in order to buy their house. So I think they've run out of ideas as well. Like, I can't imagine where that extra lever will be that allows for that capture to happen again.
0: And to finish off, I love this statement on your website. Home is where your story begins, but life is an adventure. <laughs> yeah. Well done to you guys uh, on this uh, incredible tour you're on, and I really do hope you inspire uh, the sort of developments we we so sorely need on this planet. So, uh, listeners, make sure you check out polisplan.com.au and a big thanks to Nilmini de Silva and Stephen Liaros for today. Thanks, guys.
1: Thanks. Kyle.